Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire series of Harry Bosch, so please proceed with extreme caution. You don't know who this is, and I never talked to you. There was a silence while Harry's voice was registered. Uh, Okay, okay, I got it. I understand. There's a problem with Cal Moore's autopsy. Shit, I know that man. Inconclusive. You don't have to wake me up. No, you don't understand. You're confusing the autopsy with the press release on the autopsy. Two different things. Understand now? Yeah, yeah, I think I do. So what's the problem? The assistant chief and the acting ME don't agree. One says suicide, the other says homicide. You can't have both. I guess that's what you call inconclusive in a press release. There was a low whistle sound in the phone. Oh, this is good. But why would cops want to bury a homicide, especially one of their own? I mean, a suicide makes the department look like shit as it is. Why bury a murder unless it means there's something right? I said, and he hung up the phone. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Also, please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod or our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Now all that bullshit's out the way, It's time to get back to work and probe deep into chapters 9 through 12 of The Black Ice. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we explored chapters 5 through 8 of The Black Ice, where Harry is again told to stay off the Moore case. Instead, he is given a stack of cases that another detective left behind deciding to put in for stress-related leave. Harry is told to pick one case and clear before New Year's in order to improve the division's statistics. When Harry reviews the cases, he discovers that the most recent one, the beating of a deaf Juan Doe, involves Moore. As Harry begins to investigate this case, he receives a call from Moore's co-workers, telling him they found a case file in Moore's scout car that had a note requesting Harry Bosch receive it. Harry reviews this file, discovering that Moore was putting together a file on Black Ice, a street drug originally from Hawaii that is now being sold by Mexicans. Harry knows this file is intended to answer some questions Harry had about the case involving the death of a Hawaiian drug dealer. In the file, there's a reference to an arrest of a local drug dealer whose arrest was precipitated by a tip. Harry learns the source of this tip was his victim, suggesting that the murder was in retaliation. Bosch receives an unofficial briefing concerning the crime scene about Moore. The crime scene tech expressed concerns that the room appeared to have been wiped clean. 
let's open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Harry received the autopsy report on John Doe number 67 from his on-again, off-again lover, lover, Teresa Cozon, the acting medical examiner. Teresa tells Harry that they found two different type of fruit flies in Juan Doe's body, suggesting that he was working at a place where fruit flies were dyed and eradicated. Harry then gives Teresa an investigative summary of Juan Doe 67, Jimmy Caps, and what he knows about more hoping to draw her in so he can ask her about the autopsy concerning Kalesico Moore. Teresa confessed that she feels that Moore was murdered based on evidence of the blow to the back of his head. But Deputy Chief Irvin is reluctant to allow her to call the death a homicide because she's not 100% sure of the head trauma wasn't from the shotgun blast. Teresa asks Harry to keep this information to himself, but shortly thereafter, Harry calls a friend at a newspaper and leaks this information. Later that night, Harry locates Porter, who has not been returning his calls. Porter admits that Moore requested that he slow down the investigation into Wando 67. Moore promised Porter a quote-unquote Christmas bonus from some friends of his if Porter agreed. Hearing that Moore was dead, Porter stated that he got scared and then he put in his papers to retire feigning stress-related ailment. Returning from bringing Porter something to drink, Harry is shocked that Porter has run out of the back door, leaving him angry and mad. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 9 through 12 is Promises Made, Promises Kept. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. And we're hitting the streets right now. And we start off this chapter, chapter nine, by with Harry a meeting Teresa Corazon. And what's cool about, uh, well, well, we get a sense of Harry has his on again, off again relationship with Teresa. And he he's very direct in his expectations of their relationship. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, did anyone also pick up how sensual, very detailed Michael described Teresa I think Michael has a little bit of a romance novel at at heart you know he I think in his other lifetime maybe we got to check some under some pseudonym names or uh, some alias names that some of these uh, heartthrob uh, romances because he is very explicit uh, in his detail on describing Teresa so I, I, I liked it and it really it was very descriptive and it got you to really understand how she looked and her presentment and everything about her. And, you know, the relationship with Teresa, I think Jackie and uh, the Black Echo podcast, the episode when I wore her in, 
she actually talked about the relationships with people in and out or civilians, as we call them, in and out of the world. And she talked about the plight and some of the good and excuse me, pros and cons of having such relationships. And because, you know, and she so I'm not really because I dated a police officer one time. But and, and as Jackie says, it's quite it's quite difficult because you're always around each other. But again, I think Michael, again, the reason I, I keep going over it over again, why I like Michael's writing, because he brings you into the world of being a law enforcement officer. And so we get Harry starting to lead Teresa down the road, asking her about the autopsy. But, you know, he knows enough about her that you can't just out and out ask her. So he kind of has to prime the pump a little bit. And, you know, as I said, and I'll keep saying, you got to know people in and out of your field to or sources to develop information, to gather information. And as Harry alluded to in the prior episode, he used to be a ninja. He used to be very good at maneuvering through that beast, as he called Parker Center. And Teresa is kind of symbolic of Parker Center. Because if she he didn't have a type, that type of relationship with her, she would no way give him inside information about autopsies. But in the same token, they they developed this trust with each other, and so it's a yin and yang pull and push uh, about this information sharing. And one of the, another thing that Michael captured in this particular um, description of Teresa, and we got a little bit with Sally and, and Black Echo. All these people are in and around law enforcement and they are attacking or or doing their part to for the greater good and or to help solve crimes. But everyone's an investigator at, at heart. And you hear how Teresa drags out all her investigative findings and how she's trying to show Harry that she is also a detective or an investigator. Well, and she actually is. Um, everyone in the law enforcement, if you are a crime crime scene tech person. You are very valuable to law enforcement. If you hear the medical examiner, you're very important to most of the time, you know, sometimes TV and people don't get to understand that you got to have a great supporting cast. The cops usually get all the line light, but you got to have a great supporting staff so that we can or the cops uh, and law enforcement can accomplish their uh, job. One of the things and I'm going to keep saying it over and over again, Michael makes us the readers think. And I'm hoping and I'm picking these up because now it's not spoilers because we talked about it already in the black echo and even Bosch uh, doing this conversation between Teresa and Bosch and Teresa starting to give him some more information about what was found in Wando number 67's body and getting to the, you know, some of the good investigative leads she found. But Michael puts in there, you know, talking about the, the spraying of malathion. And that's a direct link back to the Black Echo. And when he put that in there, I think when my brother and I, we talked about it, that was one of those spoilers that we wanted to give up. So now all of a sudden that ties, you know, now he's not only tying in um, uh, fast forward, he also is linking back to prior books. And then also Harry also mentioning that, yeah, the spraying with the helicopter made him uh, think about uh, uh, Vietnam again. Again, we talked about that in the, the Black Echo, but I love the fact how he he is in Michael. Well, 
uh, weaves these books in and out. And, you, and going forward, you have to pay attention because these little nuggets all over the place, these little breadcrumbs he leaves us. You, it, I know for me, when I start reading, I said, oh, oh it, wait a minute, I remember that. And I ran back to the other books like, oh, okay. So he he was setting it up back then. So again, that's one of those things that when, when if I get a chance to talk to or interview Mr. Conley, I, I'm going to ask him about that. And one of the things I love, Teresa kind of admonishes uh, Harry here because he was kind of rushing her a little bit. Like, could you just get to the point? And she said something which I, I, I will always say, I'll say it to friends, family, and I'm going to keep, I'll, I'll even keep saying it on this podcast. Uh, investigator's job is to listen, you know, sit back, listen, be an observer because people want to tell you the story. And I, again, I'm, I mentioned that back with the black echo. Um, and I'm going to mention it here, but I love how Teresa says to Harry, quote unquote, you know, you, you told me that, uh, that a, a detective's job is to listen. So sit back and listen. And I love how she did that. That was, that was right on point. Again, I, 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 I now I feel like maybe I'm, I'm talking about too much at nauseum, but that's again, another indicator how uh, Michael has gotten into our world, the police officer's world, law enforcement world, and know these little idiosyncrasies. And I like that. And now you starting to see how these cases are starting to move forward. And some things that used to be, you thought were benign and didn't have any connections. Now all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, hold on. This does have some type of connection. So she tells um, Harry about Wando number 67 and the two flies and the food that, uh, that fight the, the flies eat on. And so all these things are starting to come back again, you know? And like I said, last episode, Harry is using the timeline and starting to put timelines together and trying to figure this case out. So all of a sudden now things are starting to pick up, you know, again, Michael did a great job of that. And again, that's why we, hopefully you listen to this podcast because you agree to it again. He doesn't give it to you all at one time. He makes you think, and I like being able to read a book and think about a story because you, if you ever, you can't uh, glaze over a paragraph or a chapter because you're going to miss some little intricate nuggets. And, you know, we have also Teresa starting to tell Harry the story on what went wrong with the autopsy. And once again, and again, I wasn't doing no spoilers. It was just my initial gut when I was uh, doing a podcast. Chief Irving is way too close to this investigation. And Teresa informs Harry that, you know, that again, the chief came up with Moore's dental records. I don't know what chief, if, if he did it, again, he's exposing himself for later repercussions. But his personality, as Michael de described uh, Chief Irving, is that type of guy. He wants to be in control, wants to be things move forward efficiently. Let's get this thing done and let's move on. But this is just another example how the chief is too close. And, you know, so and not just as he's too close, but he's dictating this investigation when he has uh, su superb investigators at IED and RHD handling this type of investigation. Again, you don't get I don't know about um, IED, but RHD, you don't become our RED, RHD, excuse me, investigator and not be the cream above, you know, the top echelon of investigative skills. And so, again, Teresa tells Harry about the autopsy, tells her how the why she um, could not rule it as a suicide. And 
she describes, you know, the blow to the back of the head and all those things. And we see she describes Irving pushing her buttons. One, you want to be you want to be not acting a medical examiner, chief medical examiner. You want to be the medical examiner. And people in my position love people. And again, Irving is doing to her what he does, what it's everyone to do. Be part of the family. Get along to go along. Don't make waves. And let's slow things down. And she tells Harry these things. And we see all, 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 all of a sudden there's something going on. And anytime now Irving is in, you know, it's been developed already that if Irving's involved, then there's some type of cover up. And the only thing about the cover up is, is he doing it for the greater good? And or because and sometimes that greater good, you know, that's a double edged sword. And I was I was having to go back over some of the old podcasts. Just I do that in preparation for the new stuff. So and I talked about, you know, my as I got older in my career, I started to not empathize is a strong word, but lack of a better word, empathize with Chief Irving and the duties he does. But when he does, quote unquote, protect a family that does come at some type of cost with, to it comes at a cost of the truth. And like I said before, you know, we need the truth. The, the civilians need the truth. The public need the truth. And or that comes at the cost of some officer. You know, do you sacrifice one officer for, I'm not sure how big LAPD is, but say your, you know, your large, typical large city has 5,000 um, officers in it. So does one, you know, outweigh, is one can be sacrificed for the other uh, uh, 5,000? Those are tough decisions. But, you know, Irving, if Irving's involved, you know, he's putting up walls and he wants to control the whole situation, which again, I think when it comes to controlling this investigation against with more is he's way too close. And you know, this interaction with Teresa, and it just is reminiscent of, again, when, um, when Harry was in the hospital in the black echo and Irving lectured him about protecting the family you know, we have the, here we go again. And again, remember in the black echo, I said it is not, it's like a, a death by a thousand cuts is protect the family on this and protect the family on that and protect the family on this. And then before you turn around, you're like, okay, is this the type of person I am? Because if I'm this type of investigator or this type of cop, I'm always protecting the family when sometimes airing your dirty laundry will make everyone better. And so, you know, but again, this is the second book. And pretty much um, Irving is saying the same thing. Hey, protect the family. Come Because if you're not in the family, then we know how to treat people who aren't inside the family. You know, also, I like how Michael weaves in Sylvia Moore. I said it again. I said it in uh, the last podcast where we I believe that Sylvia is going to be a very integral person in Harry's life in this book. And again, that's not a spoiler. It's just... Mike was spending a lot of time on Sylvia Moore, so much so that Sylvia's coming up uh, in Harry's thoughts while he's actually um, having sex with uh, Teresa. And first he feels guilty about it, then he likes having her in in his um, in his mind while he's with another woman. Oof, that's rough. Uh, we also have Harry um, make reference to him and the coyote, our, our kindred spirits. You know, the lone... A coyote he's using out a pack, you know, he's by himself. He's out there working in the nights, you know, scouring around the city, 
Harry sees a lot sees a lot of himself in that coyote. And again, well, it's not a spoiler. Uh, one of the titles of one of his books is called, you know, uh, the, the Last Coyote. So again, in th- that book, The Last Coyote, is some is a couple of books away. And so again, how I love one of the, another question I want to ask Michael is how far out in advance does he plan these books, or how does he? What's his methodology? Because I know me doing my investigations, I follow the same methodology over and over and over again. So, because it then becomes familiar to me, then it makes me appreciate the steps in the process to solving a crime. Because if, if you do the same thing over and over again, then you can say, oh, wait a minute, I never checked that phone, that the phone number that came back to, and do I subpoenaed that, or did I, did I do the analysis on those records? So, I would love to find out what Michael's, um, process and how the, the coyote fits in to the process during this second book because like I said the other the last coyote comes in a couple of books later take a, a quick break here and introduce I'm brought back my old partner Jackie concerning a portion that happened in these uh, four chapters and Bosch got introduced into what a rave was or what a rave is and since it's 2019 and raves are so the thing back in the 90s even though Ricker does a good job of explaining what raves are and all that kind of stuff, I specifically remember Jackie used to do rave investigations. So I was able to uh, pull her to the side. She was doing some work. I was able to pull her to the side during a lunch break and interview her on rave and rave investigations and, and, and her thoughts about that. So uh, enjoy. So Michael, um, well, Harry finds a witness in the rave. In the narration, he does a decent job of describing a rave, but I wanted to interview you for the podcast since you have information about raves. And so I know you did a rave investigation. So I just want to quickly, if you had to describe to a novice or a jury, say a jury who don't understand what raves are because we were doing those investigations back in 1990, the 90s um what would you tell them about a rave well so it is basically like an underground um party so they could be housed um in an outdoor venue or it could be housed in um like an industrial area in a warehouse but it's going to be something that is usually um somewhat concealable from the normal public um from police um, they don't necessarily want to draw attention um, because they mm-hmm. there was illicit activity going on inside of it, and a lot of times there were underage kids there. So um, think of it as a large venue. Um, I would say the age ranged um, depending on if there was going to be alcohol. Sometimes they were a little bit better about making sure that it was a slightly older clientele to at least be legal with the drinking issue. But otherwise, it could be as young as 15, and it was kind of rare to see anybody over 25 um, unless they were just kind of creepy hanging out with young kids, which we did run across a few of those. But um, 
and then it would be um the music was like the techno um music from that that era so of course there were no words um and and the music and the light effects and the smoke machines and things that were going were supposed to be um used to help enhance the effects of a lot of the drugs that were being used so oh so that's all actually so what was the it was it people went there majority for the drug use or majority for the atmosphere or did the drug use enhance the whole the whole atmosphere so i think the drug use enhanced it um from the people that we interviewed um and you know a lot of them were really into that music they were really into dancing and um so the drug use um was supposed to be enhanced by some of those um additional things that they would bring in and you could see it you mm-hmm. could see that these people were on drugs by a lot of the side effects you know they had to drink a lot of water um cuz of course they were dehydrating right. and they were dancing around a lot um rubbing each other's shoulders because of course using the ecstasy um you know they would cramp up some you would see them with the pacifiers and things to help with the the jog tightening up um so mm-hmm. yeah i mean it was pretty obvious what was going on um, and most of these right. were club drugs. So at the time, you know, in our area, we had not seen them. Um, so this was a new kind of a new phenomenon for us. And it had been kind of kept underground um, probably in the, the first year or so. So when we found out right. about it, um, we actually, I actually found out through a college kid that we had arrested and flipped. And so, um, right. so that was when we started kind of delving into the whole club drug scene and designer drugs and started having our first encounters with um, the regular ecstasy, the powder ecstasy, the GHB, um, the ketamine. Oh, wait, wait, what G- oh, GHB stands for? Gamma hydroxy. Oh, did I get you? Colic acid. <laughs> Look at you. There and, you go. Um, okay, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yep. So mm-hmm. that was a liquid, um, and we started coming across that, which... Um, I think we probably had seen something in the media prior as far as it being used as a date rape drug. But in this case, that was, right. um, it, was, it was used in place of drinking because, like I said, some of these kids were underage and it was easier to get GHB than it was to buy a six-pack of beer. Um, right, so, right. Uh, we came across that. We came across the ketamine, which a lot of them were getting from like um, veterinary clinics. Because um, that's normally where you're going to see it is in the vets because it's still used as an um, anesthetic for animals. Correct. And, um, and of course, we came across, um, trying to think of what else. Once in a while, we come across maybe some marijuana. Um, right. But those were, those were the big ones. Um, once in a blue moon, we might come across some mushrooms or some acid, but those were, those were rarer. And those were usually people that were not from this area. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that was an issue that we started seeing, not to mention the police departments were not prepared. So we had no way to even test the drugs at the time. Um, Oh, I remember that. And then when, when we would have people that were arrested, even our court systems were not prepared um, to do drug testing to find out if they were testing positive because, of course, they were only testing for cocaine, heroin, and marijuana, which these kids were not abusing. Right. That. They were, you know, they were using other drugs. Okay. So now, ask you a quick question: When the you said you flipped a college kid, and 
they told you about this. Go, could you just really quickly go into how delicate it is to flip people? Because that actually happened in the book where they were trying, they went and targeted one particular individual and he was a, a low level guy uh, selling some dippers and then they tried to flip him. Could you get into flipping uh, a, a potential a cooperator and what do you need to do and how do you, how do you approach flipping a person? So, I mean, obviously you want to, you want to try to flip somebody who has some standing and, and some preferably an organization, but if not, you just, the, the whole point of it is to arrest somebody um, either in lieu of prosecuting them or in, um, in the attempt to reduce their sentence, they will agree to work for okay. you. So, um, you know, right. the first thing, the first step would be to debrief them and find out exactly what they know and what they're capable of. Then it will give you a better right. idea of exactly how you would be able to use this person in your investigation. Um, but, you know, especially when, when you're dealing with, um, you know, college kids and things of that nature, although you want to flip them and you want to use them to your advantage, you know, you also want to help this person get out of this lifestyle and make the changes necessary rather than to constantly subject them to this detrimental behavior. I mean, we don't want to encourage right. them to stay in this, this, you know, subculture or in this community, and then it's going to be difficult for them to ever straighten out. Ideally, we want to right. flip them, do a few things with them, and then we want them to get on with their lives, preferably going down the right path this time. So my objective okay. has always been, you know, use them the least amount as possible and never, never give them up. Never reveal who it is. Okay. Um, I mean, of course, you know, there were situations where you might have to have somebody testify in court, but I always went right. to great lengths to try to make sure that our cases were so ironclad and so airtight that we wouldn't need them. We wouldn't have to rely on, on a source that we had flipped because okay. once you did that, then you never knew. You never knew if their identity would be compromised and their safety would, you know, could be endangered. So I right, always right. chose not to ever reveal who it was. Um, and, and that way I could sleep better at night. You know, the last thing I would want to okay. do is for somebody to get hurt, you know, and it is just a case. Right. I mean, it's just a case. You don't want to jeopardize somebody's life over something. Um, you know, another opportunity will always come along, but you know, yes. you, you sit down with them, you make sure that they understand what working with you will entail. And you make them understand right, right. that, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of like the mother that you didn't have. Okay. Because I'm going to be looking out for you. <laughs> I'm going to be looking out for your best right. interest. Even though this is going to help my case, I want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. And, um, so, okay. you know, then we use these people to potentially make drug buys or to do introductions so that we could get in and make drug buys ourselves so that we can start right. moving up the chain, moving up to the bigger fish. Um, Okay. And ideally, you just keep doing that up, up, you know, up the ladder. You flip one person, you may move up a couple rungs up the ladder. Then you can flip somebody a little bit bigger that has a larger role in, in a particular, you know, organization or something. You do the same thing with them mm -hmm. and you keep moving up. And I think one thing that we found is the, the better the case is, you're not going to trial. These people all want to cooperate. Right. They want to cooperate. They want to get their sentences reduced. And you keep moving up the, the ladder, but timeliness is important. 
You know, the moment you lock well, up you- that person, you've got to flip them right away because they cannot be out of the scene from, for a day because people are going to notice. Now, well, no, in this particular book, in this chapter, Harry ran up against a guy who was a hard nose who pretty much said, fuck you, eat shit, cop and die. How would you handle a hard ass like that? Well, you know, and it depends on the walk of life that they're from. You know, because some of them (laughs) are from a very hard road and they've done time before Mm -hmm. and they know they know what it entails and they're willing to go to jail. Um, But on the on the flip side of that, sometimes you have people who, you know, to them, uh, cruel and unusual punishment is having to drink Dunkin Donuts coffee over (laughs) Starbucks. Exactly. Okay. these are the people who who cannot do time. And, you know, sometimes you do have the luxury of waiting a day or so, like maybe they're supposed to be out of town. Maybe you've got a good cover story, but I'm doing night in jail. And then they're okay, like, okay. oh, no, I definitely cannot go to jail. Okay. Because when they're in there okay. with criminals who have a little more, more street savvy, who are a little tougher around the edges, that's when they're going to be like, no, no, you know what? I, I, I. My tough guy act is over. I'm ready to commit. I'm ready. I'm yeah. ready to work with you. But you know, and and you want right. you want them to understand, you know what what is really feasible and what cooperating will do. I mean, we can't make any promises, okay. but you know what? I'm going to go in there and I'm going to go back to bat for you, and I'm going to ask the the U.S. attorneys to say, look, you know, this person was open. They did everything they possibly could, and they've turned over a new leaf, and they're ready to start over again. Um, but you know, if okay. I get the person who says, no, you know what, I'm not, I'm not helping you out. You know, I'm going to fight you tooth and nail every, every step of the way. Okay. That's fine. Right. You can take your chances at trial. Right. Cause at the end of the day, I'm going now, home. You're not. And lastly, how fun was it to work? And again, this is a setup question because I know the answer, but how fun was it to work the rave investigations? Oh my gosh. It was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, right. it was, I felt like we were like teenagers again, because of course we're, you know, hanging out at these places and you got to understand that like, this is all kept under wraps. So you, ha- you know, you don't even find right. out until the day of after 5 PM where the rave is going to be. And then you have to blend right. in. So, you know, I'm rocking like pigtails and diesel parachute right. pants <laughs> and, you know, and, and so it's, it was like Halloween every day. Um, except for the music. And that was when I really felt old because all that music was just torture. Well, remember we were in our late twenties by this time, right? We were in our, so, so, you know, it was just at the college type thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I like to think that we grew up fast from being on the police department at a young age. So, you know, patience has never really been my strong point anyways. Uh, as you know, right? But um, <laughs> as I know, so just like trying, I mean, putting on the act that like you're hanging out and partying with these people and dancing around. I mean, there were some ways it was fun. It was a lot of fun, and it was and it was really fun moving up that ladder and getting out of the clubs and and really getting into like the weight, the heavyweight drugs. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because after that, then I was like, okay, that was fun. Is done. I don't want to go back. Have to hang out in clubs anymore because I'm just <laughs> right. getting way too old for that. Right. 
But it was fun. Right. It was fun. Right. And you know what? And I it was fun. I, I right. Feel like we made a difference, especially when it was dealing with some of those younger people. Yeah. Yeah. So what I really appreciate this, Jackie. Like I said, um, just I, I call this like a hit and run. <laughs> so I just wanted to uh, get your input on this particular aspect of this uh, chapter. So thanks a lot for lending your expertise. Oh, no problem. And I will talk to you later. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. So we're continuing hitting the streets. And I want to talk about the Harry and Teresa relationship because I, so so I purposely, and one, let me Thank everyone who participated in my little poll there is overwhelmingly that everyone thought that, Hey, uh, no cover-ups. Uh, I think it was like 75% of you said, Hey, no cover-ups, no cover-ups, tell it like it is. And a couple of people, you know, the other percentage said, you know, a promise is a promise. I thought one, one particular uh, person on Facebook was kind of interesting. Um, you know, he kind of, alluded to some some stereotypical things about cops but again i like it keep it coming um and hopefully if you're putting stuff on facebook reference to the uh podcast doesn't mean you're listening and hopefully i could persuade you to be a little bit more understanding of what police life is and hopefully that's what this podcast that's what i was trying to do with this podcast again to give you listeners insight into policing and the life that we lead, that we lead. So, and I'm using Harry Bosch as a, as a fun and, but as a vessel. So, okay. I digress back up. So I'm going to talking about Harry and, and Teresa. And I think Harry gave up on Teresa because during this chapter, Harry talks to Teresa about, Hey, what are you going to do? You know, what should you do? tell me about what's going on with more. And she tells him, but she says, Hey, I, I'll tell you. But he said, well, look, I promise if I do something, it won't get back to you. And he did say that to her, but she, after they made love, you know, they're sitting there laying together talking and she says, fuck it. Pretty much. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to get along to go along or go along to get along. I'm going to be a company, a uh, family person. If they want to bury it, fuck it, bury it. And I believe something clicked with Bosch then because after Teresa left the bedroom, he calls a reporter. Well, you assume it's a reporter. And again, we shouldn't assume, but back again, back in black, um, the black echo, he had a, a good relationship with times reporter Brimmer. And so one can conclusively probably you know, put the dots together that Harry doesn't have a whole bunch of reporters in his back pocket who he would call all the time. So safely assume that it was Brimmer and he gives some Brimmer some good information. And I reason I put that poll out there again, and I love the feedback because I was mixed. I was mixed, but he did say, you know, he gave himself a, a little out. He did give himself an out where he told her, Hey, look, if I use this, it won't get back to you. And in the manner which he told Brimmer, he is still keeping up to his word and he is not letting the cover up go. So 
my poll after I looked at it, and I saw some of you guys' uh, responses and upon reflection while I'm doing this podcast, I say it was probably both. He's keeping his promise and and he's not covering anything up. So, well, and you know, we, we, we see our boy Harry is back on the hunt. You know, he describes it as, you know, the juices are flowing. You know, he feel reinvigorated, you know, because he's been on the sidelines. Again, he talked about it a couple of times throughout the book. You know, he was down in, you know, Mexico fishing. So, you know, this is like his probably his first case to where he has to start putting pieces together. And this is what jazzes him up. This is, he's, he likes to hunt. You know, he is the coyote. You know, he wants to get out there and hunt and, and solve crime. So I love that. I like this whole, you know, I feel reinvigorated with Harry when he was saying, Hey, look, I'm back in a hunt. And so, you know, we, we find that Harry, he finds, um, Porter. He's looking for Porter and he's, he's looking for Porter because after he does all this stuff, he comes to find out he's starting to put two and two together. That Porter's played him. And he stuck his neck out for Porter. And, you know, you, you know, do, do, Harry, you don't want to lose your reputation by sticking your neck out for, for somebody who lied to you. Now, I'll stick my neck out for you, but tell me the truth. Give me the answers. Give me the truth so I can then make an informed decision. And I, get, I don't, that's not just, I don't think that's just um, emblematic to being a, a cop. I think that's just anybody at, at the workplace. You know, if you're going to stick your neck out for somebody, but specifically Harry, you know, and again, remember um, Porter, excuse me, Pounds kind of pretty much asked him at the beginning of um, at the first episode, you know, talking about, hey, you know, Porter couldn't carry your, your water, but here you are defending him. So, you know, and I think it's a righteous reason why Harry's mad at Porter here. And, you know, in, in route to um, Porter's home, Michael gives a very descriptive uh, picture of L.A., at least how Harry and Michael sees it. And again, from the book, he loved the city most at night. The night hid many of the sorrows. The silence, the city, brought yet deep undercurrents to the surface. It was a dark slipstream that he believed he moved most freely behind the cover of his shadows, like a ride in a limo. He looked out, but no one could look in. I love that line. I mean, again, Michael is, is so freaking descriptive. Uh, I've never been in L.A., but I've been in, in the city at nighttime, and that scene could probably, you could take that scene in L.A. and move it to any major city at, at nighttime. There's some people who love working at night, not yours truly. But I know my brother, you know, he, he hated getting up in the morning time he did his best work at nighttime and we've always had that discussion now hey, when you like to work at nighttime daytime because he would always ask me how the hell are you getting up at you know 5 30 in the morning to get get to work at eight i'm like well i like that better but again but yours truly you know i was a i was not a night owl and so once again we uh have harry doing some things that suspect, you know, remember last, last book, he bugged, uh, one of the, uh, Asian, um, I think it was Ben's cell phone. I mean, a telephone so he can get the location of Tron. And now we have Harry, you know, going to Porter's home. Cause he's looking for Porter to find some answers. Like what the fuck is going on with this case? And he, he justifies and say, look, he lied to me. All bets are off. So then we get Harry being a burglar, you know, 
he slips his his picks out and and use those picks to pick the lock. And I thought that was pretty funny because again, like I said, some things he he knows whatever he finds in there, he's trying to find Porter. Hey, maybe Porter is dead. You know, uh, I was in there, I was trying to you know locate Porter because I was worried about him because I've been calling him. So he he had a, a readily available bullshit excuse, but so he goes into Porter's home and like I said, he says, "All bets are off. You lied to me. Fuck it." And again, this is not a spoiler. This is not a spoiler. But you know, while Harry is searching Moore's home, uh, there's a there is a, a phone call, and <laughs> he does the uh, hello, He's trying to get to find out who the person is. His little ruse didn't work, but he uh, narrates that you know it's a Spanish speaking person, you know, a slight accent, and that's not a spoiler, but. For those new people who are starting to read Michael Conley books, and hopefully you this podcast has helped you along the way. Remember, remember, Michael is a python. It's slow, methodical, it wraps around you really slowly. And by the time you realize that he got you, he doesn't put things in his book just to be putting things as fillers. That's one thing. You know, I've read I've read, you know, I'm not a I'm not a, a, a um ferocious reader like my my wife and my daughter, but I do know enough in some books that they are just trying to fill the pages. Michael, to me, does not waste time. And so when things like that happen by a Spanish person, again, I'm not, there's no spoiler here. Just little things like that, him him picking the lock, the thing with Teresa, all those little things, he's building your, your, his case so he can get you at the end of the book. And even knowing that, I still you know, time after time, I still get sucker punched. But so I, I, I put that up just so you, the listeners can, when you start or continue to read uh, Michael's books, you start saying, okay, he, he's doing something here and start to look out for it. And, you know, Michael gets us into another facet of police life. And he says it in this particular chapter that every city has a place where cops go to drink. And, you you know, most cops go there because they feel safe. They're amongst their own, you know. And let's be honest, who the hell is going to rob a, a cop bar? Because 99.9% you know, of the time, there's a police vehicle out front, you know, that's, that's, that's undeniable. Some type of law enforcement is in there from the antennas in the car, on the car, to maybe just a stripe, you know, with the bubbles on it, you know, you know, the gumball machine at the top. So most of the time, cops go to places where they feel comfortable. Um, they can let their hair down a little bit. Remember, I told you, I sat in the back, you know, at the back of the bar. You know, I, I talked about that last podcast. Well, when you go into a cop bar, you really can let your hair down a little bit. I mean, hell, everyone has a gun in the place. So, who, uh, I, you know what? I have never heard of uh, a cop bar being robbed while a bunch of cops were in there. And so, I like, again, Michael is putting you, the readers or the listeners, into the real life of a cop and how cops navigate throughout their career. So, then we have, you know, Rickard reaching out to Harry saying, hey, look, I found some, I found one of the knuckleheads who, um, his name's Kerwin, who used to sell for dance. So what I love here, again, this is one of the things that 
I the reason I brought Jackie in again. Rika does a good job explaining what a rave is, but ask Jackie that particular question about the developing sources and and the manner which we went about developing sources. And here, Rickers used one of the oldest you know, things, oldest tricks in the book about how to you get a guy with enough weight, you get him in there, and hopefully you flip him. He even told him, "Hey, hey, look, Kerwin." Uh, this PCP, I, I don't even have to, you know, book you on that. I'll throw it away. Just give my man, he was you referring to Hurry, just give him some information so that he could, you know, move on with his investigation. But the fact when Kerwin said, eat shit and die. <laughs> oh my goodness. We've been in uh we've been with plenty of young people who are hardened. Again, Jack even said it. They're hardened criminals and they know the system hell they know the system pretty much as as good if not better than some cops so i thought that was again good representation of how a street level uh investigator would move up into uh, uh to cultivate sources one of the things i like is using uh, using your authority to dis- disperse a crowd and i honestly believe some of the cops had not learned the newer cops haven't learned what Rickard did. So just to refresh your memory, after they arrested Kerwin in front of the bar, a crowd started gathering and gathering around and Rickard, it was just Rickard and Bosch. He didn't pull his weapon. He didn't, you know, quote unquote, feel menacing, but he used his authority to move the disperse the crowd. And the crowd knew he was, he was, he meant business. And, you know, he, and so I love, I love that because that's what, how we used to do it. That unofficial authority that, that, that Rickard displayed was cop 101. You know, you have to, again, um, I think my brother talked about it in uh, one of our future podcasts. I might be confusing. Just, I just know he used to patrol uh, a very, Barzy, if that's such a word, area where you couldn't be pulling your gun out all the time. You know, you had to use uh, you had to use your your presence to move the crowd. And I've seen him do it. I've known a lot of people who did it. So, but I like how Rickard, in this particular instance, would or was using his authority without you know pulling his weapon and you know getting all rough and all that kind of stuff. So, I thought that was a good representation right there of how it used to be. You know, I, I chuckle because one of the things that I love about this inter, this interaction between Kerwin and Rickard, where, you know, pretty much he's trying to scare Kerwin into, you know, confessing. I mean, not confessing, but, you know, helping helping out Harry. And so I, I would tell you a quick story, quick story. <laughs> I did an investigation that took me down to Florida. And when I was down in Florida, we locked the individual up. Now, in a big city, the jails are dank, dirty, smelly. Again, I think um, in the Black Echo, they, you know, he did, a, uh, Michael did a good job of expressing how the, the, drunk, the drunk tank was. And I told you there's two different smells I never will forget is the homicide and, you know, basically that, that the cell block smell. I would never forget those smells. So... When I went down, but that is not how it is down. Again, this is probably in the 
late nineties. So I haven't been now big been back down to this particular jail since then. But say late nineties, early two thousand, uh, we went. I flew down there, locked somebody up, and that's a long different story. So, but here's the thing: this is uh, bring bring it to this this particular portion of the book. So we locked the guy up, and I did what I did what Rickard did. I locked the guy up. I said, "Hey, look, man, won't you won't you um won't you come talk to us and you know give us some information? You know, get you know move up the ladder." And he didn't say eat shit, but so okay. No, let me back up. Back up. I'm sorry because this is a great story. So. So when we locked him up, they processed him. We brought him back and outside the detention area, you see these damn palm trees. And I think like 70 something degrees. The guy had like a little tan on. He had this nice, pristine jumpsuit and his, you know, and so I'm trying to talk to the guy. I'm saying, hey, look, come, come work for me. Give me some information, blah, 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 yada, yada. He pretty much said, nah, dude, I'm good. And I said, well, <laughs> well, you're good now. But I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen. What's gonna happen is I'm gonna I'm gonna now rip you back up here to the major city. And then you're gonna take two weeks to get here on the buses and all that kind of stuff. And then after that, we're gonna put you in a jail cell where this what you have right here is not it's not conducive with the jail cell you're going to right now. It's dirty, danky, and brother, you're not gonna like it. And he looked at me like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, oh guess what's going to happen this morning? You're going to be begging for me to come talk to you. You're going to be begging for me. So, so two, two and a half weeks go by. I get a call from the U.S. attorney. Hey, Phil, uh, your boy is, has been crying for you to come down and interview him. So, okay. So I get down there. He comes out. Now, his demeanor is totally different. The tan's gone. He looked all disheveled. He now has the, the you know, the orange jumpsuit that, you know, that's indicative with the, um, with the, the, the DOC Department of Correction on the back of his. And he looks at me like, man, uh, what took you so long? I've, I've been looking for you forever. You know, what do you need to know? And I say, and I just looked at him. It was hard not to say I told you so. I didn't say I told you so, but again, Ricker's description, I think they called it 700. I think that's what um, Harry and Ricker called it. Every big city has that cell block, and that is the dirtiest, dankiest, um, crime-infested place in any big city. So, again, thank you for your indulgence, and I'll uh, move on. Well, you know, one of the things here that, again, we're still dealing with Kerwin is that Bosch thought that Rick was pushing too hard. And the fact is, after Kerwin said, you know, pretty much, you know, fuck you, I'm not going to talk to you. They had to follow through, even though, remember now, Harry is now diverted because he's looking for Porter. And so now his night is pretty much shot, but he had, they, they, you couldn't bluff it. You know, I told you before, you don't bluff. If you tell somebody you're going to do something, tell a criminal you're going to do something, do it. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent. So they spent a couple of hours you know, booking his kid on this whole, you know, PCP thing, which they all both know is going to get probably dismissed in the morning time. But you don't bluff. You do it. You say you're going to do it. You got to do it. And, you know, Kerwin kind of took the hard road. And again, we st still see Bosch kind of soft side because, you know, here in this particular chapter, Michael lets us understand that, you know, even Bosch is hard, but Kerwin's just, I mean, He's a little fish. He's at the bottom of the of, of the barrel. And he's about to go up, you know, spend a couple of hours in the main 
the main building, the hardcore with hardened criminals. You know, I think um, Harry described it as somewhat something to the effect of either, you, you know, someone's getting killed, raped or even worse while they're there. You know, every minute of the day up there. So, I mean, yes, Kerwin was selling PCP and that's a dangerous drug. And but I think Harry was like lamenting, but does he really deserve going up there? So, again, Harry could be a badass, but he still has a heart. He still has a heart. uh, And I like that. And so after Harry and um, Rickard finished the paperwork, you know, Harry gets back on a hunt and looks for Porter. And Porter's at the worst place, the worst kind of bar. Again, every major city has this type of bar where, you know, you you pay for the setups. And, you know, they're after you bring your own bring your BY with BYOB, bring your own booze or something to that effect. And so he finds, he finds Porter sitting there and then he kind of roughs Porter up. He roughs Porter up. And I guess he, 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 he said he had to, he had to go somewhere in himself because he knew he had to do something to get information from Porter and he didn't really want to do. So he roughed up Porter. And I like the guy, you know, the owner of the place, you know, pretty much said, you know, what the hell's going on here? And he said, we're the police, you know, get the fuck out of my face. So I thought, <laughs> again, back in the nineties, we used to do things and say things that is totally not, you know, it, it would be frowned upon nowadays in 2019. And, you know, uh, what I like about this too, again, I I can see it because I've done it. When she went to one of those seedy establishments, and they find out that the police. Remember, I just said, you know, Harry said, "I am the police," and everyone gets up. <laughs> you know, they were like, look over. It's like, oh shit. And again, you gotta, you know, I'm not there. Look, dude, I'm not here for you. You know, but but none of them want to take that chance. You know, again, uh, Michael in this particular portion, they those guys are probably wanted and have outstanding warrants. So I like that. You know, that's a quick way to clear a ball, a, a, a CD place like that. Announce that you're the police. Well, and then you know, now Porter after a Bosch roughs him up, and I think he you know almost even broke his nose. Porter tells Bosch everything concerning Wando number 67. Say, look, Moore said, hey, could you do me a favor? You know, string this investigation out for a while, and I have some friends who will make it worth your while. And then Porter finds out, when, when Porter hears that Moore is dead, he figures something went wrong. And so, you know, he then he got scared. And, um... Again, I, I, I said it last po- podcast. Let's remember Porter. Porter made it to be a homicide detective, and what the hell went wrong in his life? Where again, I didn't, you know, when Harry went to his home, it was like a double wide, and he lived like a marginal life. You know, just I I've seen cops go down that road, and thank goodness I've had a good support staff. Uh, well, support staff, excuse me, support f- system, you know, and I, I've took a, a advantage of it, and you know, I th- I made it out on the other side, but you know, you kind of you really feel sorry for for Porter here, and even Harry feels sorry for him because after he told him the truth, Porter looks at the p- boss and says, "Hey, you're gonna take care of me? Are you gonna take care of me?" And Harry, you know, relents and. Uh, you know, goes to get some, some, you know, going to get, go get him something to drink. 
And when he goes get him something to drink, he comes back and fucking Porter takes advantage of him again and takes off running and escapes through the rear entrance. You know, like, what the fuck? You know, Harry got to be saying, you know what? I'm tired of, you know, fucking Porter. He sticks his neck out time and time again. He gives him chances over and over again. And Porter still takes advantage of him and escapes out the back. So, again, our boy Harry is not um, infallible. You know, sometimes shit happens because he's a good-natured guy. So my everyone counts or no one counts person for chapters 9 through 12 is my boy Rickard. Now, reason is I like Rickard because in this particular, in these four chapters, Rickard was elevated because he embodied what homicide and vice supposed to do. You know, he was out there late at night. You know, Harry pretty much gave a mission because at the end of the day, I mean, I've always looked at if homicide needed my help, I, I kind of put everything else aside and helped homicide out because at the end of the day, that's the that is the most important crime that, that could be solved because taking of a life is so bad. I mean, so I mean, it's you know, there's no other uh, crime that's as worse as someone taking a life. So I had no comp- problems with helping homicide out, getting them information to help them solve their crime. So the manner in which Rickard won, you know, again, Harry, excuse me, uh, Michael showed you the true life of a vice guy because you keep a spare set of clothes in your car. And, you know, you ca- he came up with a very in, uh, ingenious way to disarm uh, Corwin to, again, try to flip him. So it, that, that right there put a smile on my face. So... This particular chapter, chapters 9 through 12, uh, my everyone counts or no one counts person is uh, Rickard. So that concludes chapters 9 through 12's review. Thanks for hanging in, hanging in there with me. And also, could you continue to go to Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and continue to rate us five stars or better? Also, if you could be so uh, helpful and leave a comment, uh, it does make me better. And those comments are, are very valuable, and I do appreciate your feedback. And also, if you have the time or you feel as though this podcast is worthwhile, share me with your share this podcast with a friend or family, so I can continue to grow. And again, whatever you do, just by listening, I really do appreciate it. So next up, 
is chapters 13 through 16 of The Black Ice. Again, thanks a lot for your time and patience. Talk to you later. Bye.